Well, where we're at today is the focal point. And of course, where we'll be at next week, of course, this is considered to be what uh, Palm Sunday. And then next week, we'll be talking about Resurrection Day. And uh, we uh, celebrate that every Sunday. You know that. That's, it's all about the resurrection. And of course, this is a time that we can really proclaim it. And, uh, you know, this is a, a phenomenal time. Because this is so basic, as I went through it, and every, everybody has heard that so many times, but when you really think about it, what is the most important thing that you can know? Who God is and what He did for us, right? And of course, that cross is the very crux. It's right in the middle of it all. Of course, along with the resurrection, they two go hand in hand. We're going to be in Mark 15 today. Before we turn there, you remember in John 17, just before he was arrested, he was praying. And there is in John 17 what is called the high priestly prayer. And that's where he is mediating for you and me and all the saints, right? And he was mediating there. Before he had done that, though, he said, I have finished the work. He says, I have glorified you on earth, Father. And I have finished it. It's done. It was done right here. The work is done at the cross. So Mark's Gospel is the Gospel of the cross. That's really where everything has been pointing. And I think it's so interesting as we lead up to this, we're right on schedule, right on time as we have been going through the book of Mark. And now here we are at getting at the culmination of it all. Isn't that exciting? Kind of neat how that works out. And I, I want you to understand that this last week, of Jesus' life is recorded by Mark. Mark is a very quick book. It's the shortest of the Gospels. But you'll notice he started that triumphal entry in Mark 11. And then his one week he records and, and puts down, we have chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, and today we're in 15, and then chapter 16 will be the resurrection. How many chapters did we just count? Six out of 16 for one week. And of course, if you look at the other Gospels, you have a disproportionate amount too. That means that's what everything was focusing on much more just in one short time really than his life, even though there are more chapters coming up to that. But in a, in a compact way, uh, in comparison to that, I, I think it's uh, rather amazing that Mark records this, the servant of Jehovah had come in the world to do this. I came to be a servant, to be a ransom to the many. Mark chapter 10, verse 41. So what we have now is recently we talked about the three trials before the Jews. And then he had three trials before the Romans or the Gentiles. And that would be Pilate and then to Herod and then back to Pilate. And uh, he stands guilty because of the Jews' choice of that. And when we got into verse 20 um, of last week, 
they put the garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. They led him out. And so there he goes. And of course, we talked about that beam as he would be uh, carrying that. But he actually doesn't carry it because he is so weak. He has been so beaten. And uh, the usually the victims of the crucifixion, after they have been beaten, and maybe not so much like Jesus was beaten and, and uh, done damage to, they would strap these uh, crossbars there to their shoulders and they'd march him out to, to the city to that permanently fixed pole in the ground and then put that crossbar up there and therefore the cross. Uh, there was a purpose of scourging and that was to make their death happen pretty quick. Uh, it would still be hours. It would be throughout that day, but the Romans didn't want to keep them up there for days and days and days. Sometimes that might happen, but they wanted to keep the victim there long enough that people would see them and they wouldn't want to cause some kind of insurrection. It was great advertisement for Roman justice, wasn't it? If you'd see somebody hanging on that cross by the main highway. You know, you can think of Missouri Boulevard and where you... Uh, of course, you turn off on the Dix Road. That's a pretty focal point, isn't it? Or uh, Highway, uh, what, 50 and 63 and 54. They meet where uh, Missouri Boulevard is at. Well, if you could put something there, that'd be great advertisement. Well, that's where they would put these guys that would be hanging. Everybody would see it. What a what a sign. And so anyway, Jesus doesn't really carry it uh, because there is somebody else that's going to carry it. Simon the Cyrene. We didn't touch verse 21 last week. It was kind of in the text. And so I didn't really put it in the text today, but it's, we're kind of talking about that in the introduction. Um, this man is just standing there. He wasn't expecting anything. He's just watching. And the next, he probably doesn't even know Jesus. He's there for the Jewish Passover. And the next thing you know, he's carrying this cross beam because Jesus has been so weakened down. And so it's just like the Holy Spirit just breaks in on this scene as we're walking the Via Dolorosa. That's where Jesus is heading down, this wake of sorrows. We get a flash of reality here as the Holy Spirit breaks in. It's like, look for a moment. There's a sinner carrying the cross. Jesus was not a sinner. He did take our sin, but He was not a sinner. And it's only fitting that uh, He takes us outside uh, the gate. It's a sinner. The spotless Savior who never sinned doesn't carry the cross. And let's be honest, we all should have been carrying that cross piece. We all are sinners. We needed a Savior, right? And so, anyway, this is at the heart of what the Gospel and what Christians are about. So these next two weeks, even though we're so familiar with it, just dig in and get the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ as something that seems so tragic is all in a part of the plan of God who has purposed this to happen for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your great display of Your love, Your grace, Your mercy for us. The focus is on the cross today. The focus is Christ on that. And what He did for us. What He went through to get there. And 
he was looking to the end of the race, knowing after what he would do, which was a perfect act of sacrifice, the perfect act of love, that our sins would be paid for. And never, ever again will we stand guilty before the Holy God. Help us to have that impressed upon our hearts today. And your Son and the Savior's name, amen. amen. We turn to Mark 15, and we are at verse 22. And we are going to go through the chapter. A lot to cover, but you're familiar with it. But we want to uh, let this be fresh in our mind today. Uh, 15.22 starts with, they brought him to the place Golgotha. Of course, what is Golgotha? It's an Aramaic word. And, of course, the Bible's in three languages. It is in Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, and New Testament. That's usually what it is, but there are some Aramaic parts in the Bible. And so, in, in this case, it's called Golgotha, which means skull. Probably heard of that. Um, it's also called Calvary, because in the Latin, that's what that would be called. Um, so, same thing. It's the place of the skull. It could mean that there were so many skulls around the area because of the crucifixions, they just let them lay there, and uh, therefore it was the place of the skull. Or it could be a hill where actually that place looks like uh, kind of like a skull, a human skull of this hill as, as you pass by there. And of course, you've probably seen pictures of that. You think of Gordon's Calvary and, and such, seen, seen that probably a lot. And it actually does kind of look like a skull. Anyway, uh, whether it's that or not, there's traditional places that they have in Jerusalem. We don't know for sure. But we do know this for sure is outside the walls, outside the city when uh, that was done. And, of course, we know that that is a place of rejection. Um, wherever that spot is, it's, it's definitely something that was uh, meant to be. It has to be outside the city. That's where they do the crucifixions. And in Hebrews, it said, Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered outside the gate. And, of course, in one of their festivals, they would have a scapegoat that would go outside the camp, outside the city. And uh, this is what Jesus is doing as He's getting rid of our sin also. Outside the camp, bearing His reproach. So it says, they brought Him there, which is translated place of the skull. They tried to give Him wine mixed with myrrh, but He did not take it. And the wine, the myrrh, um, the reason for that the story goes that there were some uh, women in Jerusalem, respected women, who would provide some kind of a, a kind of a narcotic drink that would numb the the senses somewhat, at least as much as possible, uh, as people were condemned to death. That it wouldn't be the worst kind of pain they could have. It would uh, be like you know what well, we have painkillers today. Well, this is what this really is, and it was out of uh, the sense of uh, they, they felt for these people that were there. So they'd, they'd give them that. Uh, Jesus didn't want to have His pain dulled. He did not take it because we know that He wanted to feel everything. He took on our humanness, didn't He? And 
So he didn't want to be numbed to this. He refused it. And it's an anesthetic. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7, it says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Somebody who's dying, give them something that will kind of numb them. It's, you know, it's like it's comparable to medication today. But he refuses it, and he bears in full, consciously, everything. He feels it all without any kind of numbing. So that means a lot right there, doesn't it? It should mean quite a lot to us. Then we go on. And it says in verse 24, And they crucified Him and divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. The dividing the garments. And this is in fulfillment of Psalm 22. And we have seen one element after another. It's just like everything that is happening that is recorded in these Gospels has already been pre-recorded. Remember when you used to get get those messages on TV, this has been a previously pre-recorded television show, whatever. Well, this was uh, pre-recorded. Pre-written history that's coming true before their eyes. I don't know how many people are even catching this. Later on, we know the uh, Gospel writers certainly do. Uh, If you were looking... Psalm 22, verse 18. Psalm 22 is so graphic of what happened at the cross, written 1,000 years before this, written by David. And it was kind of like that came true of David, or it was him, but yet it, like in prophecy so often, means much later in the future. And even can happen again and again. You know, certain prophecies do that. Well, This is David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're familiar with that, right? Of course, this is exactly what Jesus says. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. You can see they are. That's David. This is definitely Jesus. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Sound familiar? Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Right. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So it weaves in and out. You can see a part of David here and then also the prophecy. Um, Here we go. Verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion as people mock him and make fun of him. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Which is exactly what happens on the cross. When you're crucified, all of a sudden bones start becoming out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, 
For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They didn't break his bones, did they? They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Isn't that incredible? 1,000 years before. How can anybody explain this? And all these details become fulfilled. So we go back to our mark and we see that that is because Scripture is being fulfilled. Divide up the garments. Um, I would think they probably allowed him a loin cloth being sensitive to the Jewish sensibilities. Uh, you, would, you would think that. Uh, we don't know for sure exactly, but... Um, they're crucifying him. What does it mean to be crucified? I'm not going to spend hardly any time on that. We know that there's a method of putting the nails, these square, big, rusty Roman nails, are hammered through uh, probably the wrist, and we, that was considered part of the hand as far as the Jews were concerned. And uh, of course, in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet, which is exactly what they did. And as the victim hung there, his joints are being disjointed. The victim could die of all sorts of different various effects of the crucifixion. You you have massive blood loss that's coming out because of the beatings and what they've done there with the uh, driving the nails in them. And the, the shock that they have. Dehydration in the Mediterranean sun. 100 degrees, who knows? It has to be terrible. Various, various effects that, that are going on here. Suffocation as they try to pull themselves up and get air to breathe and as time goes on, they suffocate and they die that way. So um, when you think of crucifixion, you also think of uh, our English word that we have, excruciating. You, you explain how painful it is that you're going through sometimes. You wouldn't believe it. It was excruciating. Crucify. That's how heinous sin is that God the Father, the whole triune God, would have the Son of God, the Savior for us, dying in this method, the worst way that could be done. And so we move on to the next verse. It was the third hour when they crucified Him. That's 9 o'clock in the morning. And... This has to be right on time for all this to happen, for Him to die at the very time that Passover lamb has to be um, taken uh, in, as far as His life is concerned, a sacrifice. The inscription of the charge against Him read, and this is what Mark has, the King of the Jews. Now, in other Gospels, you, you put that together, it says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Mark's not wrong. He gets an angle that he wants to put in there. And, of course, you remember the story of, of Pilate. And, of course, Pilate kind of wanted to keep him from being punished and then killed like this. And so he's in charge of this no matter what. Okay, if they're going to get their way, I'm at least going to put this up here. And it's kind of done in a in a humorous way, in a way to get back at them. 
um, the Jews would never say that he's the king of the Jews. And of course, Pilate could care less. He's definitely not the king of the Roman Empire, so he puts this placard up. But uh, that was normal also for the ones who were being crucified to have this placard and it would give the crime that they have. Well, Pilate couldn't find a crime, could he? Never really could. So here's the crime. He's the king of the Jews. So there we go. It's kind of done in a backslap way. But um, now it starts mounting. That's Pilate's way. And we, we saw that uh, you know even though it seems like he tried to do some good things, he still was in his sin, wasn't he? And Pilate was. And uh, so, you know, he could have taken control in this, but he, he didn't because he didn't want to lose favor. He didn't want to lose his job, so he gave in even though he knew he was innocent. Now, we go into the insults. The insults, they're, they're wagging their heads. They're crying out. They're shouting at Jesus as He's on the cross going through this. This is something hard to imagine. You know, and we have people who are, uh, their lives have to be taken in prison because they were murderers. And they'll give them some kind of poison that's pretty well in a, in a very humane way that's done. They, they die quickly and such. They're not crucified. And usually some kind of a drug that they'll take. And, Whatever, but um, I'm sure there, uh, as that's happening, you don't hear a lot of people shouting bad things to them, cursing them, blaspheming them. You know, it's probably a very a quiet occasion. But that's not the case here, as our Savior and God is here, is on the cross. It says they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. There's another detail. You know, it's one thing to have. Well, he's going to be. He's going to. Uh, he's going to die. You know, and he's going to die young. And you know, you hear those kind of things in other religions. They'll have like supposedly prophecies or whatever. And it's just general. It's so basic that could happen to anybody. But when you get down, oh, by the way, here's another one. Uh, there's going to be two that one on each side that are also going to be crucified. Now that's found actually in Isaiah 53. Um, if you wanted to, to look that up. That's all part of uh, the fulfilling. There are, uh, there are these guys. You have the passers-bys. Those passing by in 29 were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You who can do that. You said you could. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Come on, you can do it, right? As they're yelling up at him. Um, Probably Jews. Maybe from the city. Maybe from somewhere out there where they've been visiting. Uh, They're here to slay the lamb to celebrate God's deliverance. And they're actually mocking God's Passover lamb. They've celebrated this Passover for 1,500 years. These people come in and there he is finally 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what are they doing? They're sneering at Him, mocking Him. They say, destroy the temple. And of course, He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about this temple, His body. And of course, that was one of the charges they had against Him. Well, here's one thing that He said. He said He's going to you know, destroy this temple. They made that up. Totally misunderstood. Misconstrued what He had. That's the... Uh, the ones who were passing by. You know what? I am so glad that He didn't come down off that cross. Like they said, He said, okay, look at this. Watch this. Boom, just come right off there. And didn't go back up. or something. I'm glad He stayed there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, would we? Totally in our sins. I think it's in... Uh, Verse 31 here. Yeah, in the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. I think that this is very staggering. The chief priest mocking him. Can you imagine having a trial for somebody and the judge and all the people that are against him and lawyers or whatever and there they are mocking the one that they're leading off into the sentence. Have you ever heard of such things? I'm sure some people probably felt like doing it. And maybe that has happened in court. But the officials, the leaders doing that, they were not satisfied in driving him to his death. And all of this was illegal, right? All of these trials, everything that's been done is absolutely illegal. They're not satisfied with that. Matter of fact, they're breaking their own laws to do this, which they were the ones who made the, some of their laws. Of course, a lot of the law was God's law. And to make it even worse, they want Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a murderer, to be released in the place of Christ. <laughs> I mean, how low can sin in mankind go? The Prince of Peace. So, sending Him to His death doesn't satisfy them. They had to follow Him. They go all the way out to the execution place. They follow Him all the way to Golgotha. Oh, the hatred that they had. Quite the hatred. Mocking Him all the way. And telling him to get down from the cross if you really are the Son of God. They didn't believe that he was. And, of course, he really could have come down. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have wiped every. Matter of fact, from the cross, he could have done what he did up in the garden and had everybody just hit the ground and just stay there. And then he could have come off and then just made them disappear. He could have done that. But no, he can't do that. He did something far greater than coming down. He died and rose again. Aren't you glad? He couldn't have saved anybody if he had saved himself. Verse 32 Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. 
If you come down, then we can believe you. What else does He need to do, right? Those who were crucified with Him were also insulting Him. That's interesting. Because I saw one of them that was crucified with Him that actually had them forgiven. That is the beauty of this. At first, along with the other thief, he was casting insults just like the other guy. Because it says those. And you're right. And that's what we go right to. Here is the magnificence of God's grace. Because now, even after this one man who was a thief, he was a sinner, and even hurled abuse at Christ, becomes saved before the end of the day. Now, that's the grace of Christ. I think that is one of the most remarkable things that you have. And I think that's what's so important that you see in Isaiah 53, you know, that how He's buried and how He is with um, these men that are on the cross. And it's wonderful. Look in Psalm 76, verse 10. Thinking about this one man who becomes saved. Now, this magnifies the grace of God here. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. The wrath of man shall praise you. Here it is, this very man who is just doing what all the others are doing and the, the, you know, there's the wrath coming out of him. At the same time, we notice that he's going to be, pretty shortly, he's going to be praising him. He's a man who's going to repent. Same guy who's in such sin is going to repent and believe. That is a work of God. I guess some of the things that he saw and how Jesus took all this in and ultimately, it's the very power of the Holy Spirit that comes into this man. And of course, we know that what does Jesus say later on? Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's incredible. This man believes. That is unbelievable. But that is where we are all at. Anybody who is... Saved comes from sin. Terrible sin. The muck and the mire that we were all involved with and we are in that same place. And by the way, this thief didn't even have to be baptized or walk down an aisle or do anything. All that he did was believe. And you know, all of a sudden it was like his heart changed and he wanted what Christ had. There's a repentance involved, but the thing is, he didn't have time. There was no way that he was going to be baptized or be able to do some kind of work. It was at that moment that he became saved. That's a beauty of grace, isn't it? tell you something else. Not only the thief on the cross, but there were many priests. Uh, I think it says in Acts 6-7, uh, the early church after the resurrected Christ, uh, the word of the gospel had spread, and a number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
That's in Acts 6. A great many of the priests, this is, wow, this is those guys' jobs. They're priests. You know? It's like they do sacrifices and stuff. And when you become a believer, that's not necessary anymore. He is the sacrifice. It is finished. The work is done. A great many of the priests, probably the very same ones that have been mocking Him that we just read here. Some of the religious leaders. Is that God's grace? That's God's grace. That is in picture what happened to us. Same kind of thing. They, you know, you can say, well, that some of those guys, they didn't deserve it. No. Nobody does. There's nothing like the grace of God. It's insurmountable. So insurmountable. Internally greater than all our sin. Grace greater than all our sin. One example of this grace through these characters. A thief. Chief priest. Mocking Jesus. He saved others. Himself He cannot save. And that means anybody can be saved from their sin. All manner of sin and blasphemy may be forgiven of men. There they were, blasphemy. All of it can be taken away. I think that says a lot about that thief, doesn't it? That's us. That's us. Okay, verse 33. We're going to get into the full fury of God's punishment. When the sixth hour came... Darkness fell over the whole land. Now this is until the ninth hour. This is at noon till three o'clock. And all of a sudden for three hours, absolute darkness over the whole land. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness at noon. Darkness shrouds the whole land. Now, a lot of ancient historians record an eclipse of the sun at about this time, but this was not a mere eclipse. You know, eclipses are pretty cool, aren't they? Especially when it turns dark during the day. But this is a miracle. This comes from God. And by the way, reason I can say that is because at Passover, there's a full moon. That's how they mark Passover. Anytime there's Passover, I think it's starting this week. I'm not sure. I think it's Tuesday. Am I right? And that there should be a full moon. I've noticed the moon's looking fuller and fuller every night and it's pretty bright out. Well, then that night it will be very full at, at its fullest. And the thing is, you can't have... It's impossible to have eclipse of the sun whenever there's a full moon. That's what they tell us. So this has to be something outside uh, nature that happens. God darkens out the sun. Boy, I'll tell you what. I think it has to remind some of these religious Jews of the first Passover. You remember the first Passover? There were ten plagues. You know what the ninth one was? Darkness. If you've been in a cave, deep into the cave, it's absolute darkness. You can't even see the hand in front of you. Right? 
we're probably talking this kind of darkness that happened over during that that uh, Passover, that first Passover. Do you know what happened after the, that three-day darkness that they had? Three days of darkness? The tenth plague happened. And you know what the tenth plague is? The firstborn. The death of the firstborn. The, the firstborn are killed. God was shrouding the land in the darkness because His firstborn Son, the Passover Lamb, was giving Himself and His life for sinners at this particular time. The earth became black. became dark. I don't know how dark it was, but I can tell you it was dark. It, it had to uh, amaze people that were there. Could they see some? Probably somewhat. But this doesn't happen. This is out of the ordinary. This is symbolizing the full, complete judgment of God. Are you ready for this? Against mine and your sin. Complete, utter, full judgment happened. Do you know what? That's what the cross is. It's taking that sin and He was punishing that sin. He was drinking the cup, the wrath of God. The wrath of God was upon the Son. This is God's plan. Men are held responsible for it. Sovereignty of God. Responsibility of man rather staggering and your your mind cannot fathom all the depth of that right now can it can you can you get that the wrath of god was upon him my god my god why have you forsaken me how many people have heard that non-believers have heard of that haven't they quoting from psalm 22 we read that earlier verse 1 he fulfilled that prophecy Matter of fact, there are seven cries from the cross. None of the Gospels have all seven. You read all the Gospels, you get seven. Seven statements that he said. Mark records this that he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? He's crying this out. He had, he had suffered so much mentally and physically, emotionally. And now we're touching on these three hours of darkness. It makes all those other sufferings that have happened look insignificant as He is taking on this spiritual suffering, taking on our sins. Folks, this is about as holy, the holiest of ground that we can be on when we witness Christ right here crying out, Why have you forsaken Me? He's speaking to the Father. He's saying He has forsaken What's going on? There's a mystery here that as I'm on holy ground, I can't really give you a full answer. I've attempted it down through the years. I've thought about it. How many here have? And you've heard all sorts of different answers for it. And I'm not going to really give you a whole big kind of an answer here today. I'm going to kind of leave it in mystery for the fact that some of the answers and explanations I had leave it inadequate. It... uh, doesn't explain all that's going on. It helps a little bit. Martin Luther said this, and he was not an average intellect, was he? 
God forsaking God, who can understand it? Christ in some way was forsaken a God that we might not ever be forsaken of God. He was forsaken. We will never be forsaken for eternity. How much does this mean? Forsaken. Three hours He was bearing our sin. Look in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Many of you are very familiar with this. Boy, this really explains a lot right here. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin, He never sinned, perfectly innocent, to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin... Here's the great exchange. Our sin put on Him. His righteousness put on us. What a great exchange. That's the best deal that could ever happen to you, isn't it? There's nothing that compare even in this world. As much as you enjoy and take on things in life and you do, man, that is the most important thing that can ever happen in our lives when the righteousness of Christ comes into us and we're declared innocent. Look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us. He bought us. Delivered us from the curse of the law. Here we go. Having become a curse for us. For it is written, out of the Old Testament, the law, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He uh, took the curse. We were bought out from that curse. Anybody who does not believe in Jesus Christ is cursed and they will be condemned for eternity being separated from God forever. Oh, Isaiah prophesied this. Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You notice transgressions? We were disobedient crossing over. You notice iniquities? The punishment for our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Took all that iniquity. Yet it pleased the Lord. Get this. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Who did this? It was the Jews. It was the Romans. It was God who did this. God did it. It pleased Him to do it. When you made His soul an offering for sin, there it is. He's the sin offering. 
the offering has been put forth. He's exhausting and he's enduring, I mean totally exhausted, and he's enduring this wrath of the eternal God and it was all in our place. And here we go into high doctrine with something that it seems to be so simplistic. He's assuming the place of the sin bearer. He took that place. That's called substitutionary atonement. He substituted for us. There are many people today, many Arminians, who will not believe in a substitutionary atonement. And even more, the penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means punishment. Christ took on punishment. They will say, no, it wasn't, wasn't penal. It wasn't punishment. He, he died and because he, there, was, there was suffering there that had to be done. But it, it's, uh, this is at the heart of the Gospel. The atonement is the penal, substitutionary, propitiatory sacrifice. We know what penal means. We know what um, substitutionary is, or vicarious, in the place of. He took our place. And of course, propitiation. A big word, but it means this. God was appeased, or better, pleased with what Christ did because the full work was done. So those key words are being just hacked up into pieces all over the body of Christ today in the church. And this is at the heart of what the Gospel is. This is what was taught in Scripture. It was taught in the early church. It was taught by Augustine. And then it kind of started getting lost. And you get merits and things that people do for salvation. And long came the Reformation. And they got back into the Word of God. They preached the heart of the Gospel. And it was about Christ alone and His sacrifice alone. And that is key. That's how we're justified. So they taught penal, substitutionary, propitiatory, sacrificial atonement. Atonement is the covering for our sin. This is what happened at the cross. That's the heart. That's why you're getting some many good books written again. Crossway has put out quite a few books dealing with the atonement something so simple, but it's been lost again. It needs to be another Reformation. Always. So, three hours of darkness, sin is being taken care of. What about those ones who don't trust in Christ? Well, their sin was never paid for because if it was, they'd be going into heaven too. Because the sins that are paid for are now declared righteous. And how can an unbeliever who will never be a believer, if that be the case, how can he have his sins paid for? That means Christ paid for something that he doesn't get. And he says, well, I hope, I hope they come to me. It says they are drawn to him by God. The eternal wrath of God will send people into eternal hell. And it's still on them. They are responsible for their sin. He was paying the penalty, though. And all Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Right? If it's been paid, it's been done. If sinners 
who will never trust Christ, don't want to trust Christ, and they have their sins paid for, you have a major problem. Or people will say, well, that's why I believe in universal atonement. Everybody's sins are paid for and everybody will go into heaven. That's universal salvation. Then Jesus lied about hell, didn't He? And so that's quite the dilemma. At the same time, it might be hard to figure out, but it's the responsibility of man, the very grace of Christ. We're seeing the sins being paid for. The ransom was made. Uh, There was sour wine. He thirsted. Remember? I thirst. And as he thirsted, that allowed him to make one of his last statements. And he cried it out loud. And this is a miracle. Because by that many hours, with all the suffering that he had done, nobody has even hardly much. They can't even get inhale. But he's crying out that people could hear. It was very loud. Jesus was willing to be the Lamb of God. He is not uh, uh, just letting them do it because He couldn't do anything about it. He could have. He could have come off there. But He was in control all the way and with a loud voice. He says, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And He cries that out. In John 19.30, He put it like this. When Jesus received the sour wine, He said this, It is finished to Telestai. It's done. The work is done. All the sinners have had their debts paid. There's no more work to be done. It's done on the cross. And He cried out with a loud voice to do that. Paid in full. That is the voice of a winner, folks. It's paid. It's done. This is done. And then He bowed His head. And this is an absolute control. And then he gave up the ghost. Well, what's so strange about that? There was no involuntary collapse here. What's happening? God is control is controlling all of this. Whenever one die, they they die and then they collapse their head. They go like that. But he's in total control. He, it's it's him who is controlling the very time of of His death all the way through. Be reconciled to Me, He's saying. It is finished. He willed this. And uh, there were miracles at the crucifixion. Boy, the veil tears from what? The top to the bottom. Not bottom up. That's impossible for that to happen humanly. Nobody didn't crawl up there and start tearing that down. This happened miraculously. God did this from the um, top to the bottom. It's a curtain that ordinary men couldn't tear. It was so thick anyway. You know what this did? This opened up a new and living way into the holiest place. Of course, in the temple, that just let it all open. All of a sudden, you can see it. Before, nobody was ever to go in there but the high priest once a year. And now, all of a sudden, it's saying, here it is. That's representing. We all now can go to God through Jesus Christ. We can speak and talk to Him anytime we want. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a veil. It has been rent. It's been torn. 
Augustine said he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Amazing. There was an earthquake. Matthew 27 records that. A great earthquake. Darkness. Don't you know that there are all sorts of signs for people here? Dead people walking and talking. I think that's in Matthew. That get up out of the graves. Explain that one. And then the centurion. The witness of the centurion. You remember that, don't you? Read 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And there you have a man probably converted to. Now you have the man on the cross. You're going to have priests later on. Here you have the centurion. He had been there the whole time. Men cannot cry out like this. And the way that he took all this in, it made him a believer. Just that. He experienced the darkness, all of the things that have gone on, and he says, this is the Son of God. Wow. Look at all those things. This man is unique. This has to be the Son of God. There's no man that could do this. A loud voice. And then you have women at the crucifixion. Women who came with him to Jerusalem when the men were scared for their safety. Guess who's there? I think John later is is there. But the rest of them have disappeared in fear. And the women risk all they had. And I find sometimes the ones who have the most inquisitive questions... Most spiritual thirst sometimes are women and not the men. Isn't that something? It's lovely to think that women were last at the cross and first at the tomb. We finish in uh, verse 42 through 47. When evening had already come because it was preparation day, that the day before the Sabbath. You know the story on that. That's um, We have this whole Passover coming. And you cannot, you got the Sabbath coming. You can't do anything on that day. Joseph of Arimathea came, okay, before the, the next day there. He comes, a prominent member of the council. Catch that. He's a part of the Supreme Court. He's a prominent member of the council, folks. A prominent member. Remember how we've been talking about the Supreme Court? Was he there at the trials? I don't know. Was he part of that? Uh, maybe he maybe he was. I don't know. But he, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He's looking for this to happen. I'm sure he, he thought, hey, maybe, maybe this was supposed to be it. He gathered up courage and he went in before Pilate, a Roman, and asked for the body of Jesus. Usually a, a family would come and, and get the body and take them if there would be a proper burial. Most of the ones may not have a family or, to, or, or, or a place for them to bury. And you know what would happen? They would just throw them into the trash heap. Throw the bodies in the trash heap, that's all. That's how the Romans regarded all that. And uh, so this is important that Jesus not be done in dishonor. And it's also saying it in Isaiah 53 that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. This man is a, a prominent member of the council. And he's going to put him into that. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. 
And here we go with the death and summoning the centurion. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And of course, they didn't break his bones. Jesus already died. He gave it up before they could do that. As the prophecy said, bones would not be broken. So he's granted the body. Joseph bought a linen cloth, cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And nobody could get in and get that. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he is laid. The request is granted, asked for the body, prophecy fulfilled. What a funeral for Jesus! Nicodemus is along with this man also. Remember Nicodemus back in John 3? He's now seen. He's now seen in open daylight with this. Only two came to his funeral. No hymn was sung. No prayer was prayed. No sermon was preached. They put him in the tomb. Rock was rolled across uh, across the front. It all happened on this preparation day on this Friday. And then you have the two Marys. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. They wanted to have their moment to show their love for the body of Jesus. So they're checking this out where, where he's at. And they're going to go back home, mix spices, wherever they were staying, to bring back to the tomb. And you remember when, when they went to the tomb, you know what happened. Because the next day you, you can't do that on the Passover, uh, the Sabbath, it's forbidden. Sabbath's the day when you couldn't go places and do work. They were back on that Sunday morning. And uh, according to Luke 24.1, they brought their spices. And boy, were they in for a surprise when they arrived. Luke says they rested on the Sabbath and they go to the tomb on Sunday. It's Friday. Sunday's coming. And we'll be back next week with the empty tomb. What does the death of Christ and all the wrath that was poured out on Him mean to you?